so in light of child dedications this morning, I, I wanted to bring a message uh, specific to parenting, but my hope is that whether we're parents of young children or we're not, it will be useful for all of us by God's grace for several reasons. First, as a church family, as we've talked about and prayed about, these parents and their children are part of our family, and their joys, according to God's word, are to be our joys. Their sorrows and struggles are to be ours in some manner. Their fight for their marriages and their children's hearts should engender our encouragement, our counsel, and our comfort. That's part of what we've been talking about in our whole series, like mini-series we're in right now about discipleship, is that the church is a family. It's not a building, it's not an event. It's a family of people who watch over each other's souls for their good in Christ Jesus. And second, many of us, whether, whether as future parents or older parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles, uh, will, Lord willing, and probably already do, have the opportunity to, even if you don't have young children at home, have the opportunity to be an influence on a home an influence on parents with young children. And so if anything is said today is of the Lord, my hope is that it will, it will perhaps prepare you to be usable uh, for you in that regard as you minister to brothers and sisters in Christ, um, whether they're your grandkids or your kids or your cousins or nie- nephews and nieces who are in the context of raising kids in a home. And lastly, in, in the, at the end of my remarks, as I kind of tie things up, I hope that you'll see that indirectly uh, or directly, all of what we're going to talk about speaks really to our own relationship with the Lord, uh, because he is the ultimate parent, he's the ultimate father that we're trying to uh, follow, and who is trying to communicate his heart to us, even through his commands to parents. He's trying to say something about his heart and who he is. Um, so in trying to offer something to these young parents, to Jesse, to Luke, to Maddie, to Mark, to Caleb and Julia, to Maddie, to Isaac, to Emma, um, Michelle, I hope that we'll be able to, everybody will be encouraged. Uh, I want to start by reading a, a simple uh, intro some, from some of the intro of this simple little book, which was one of the gifts to the parents today. This book is called Family Worship, and this book has really been hugely influential for me. Um, and Donald Whitney wrote it. Uh, he, he's an author of many books on devotions and disciplines uh, uh, in the Lord. He starts uh, the book by saying this, Some time ago I was in England, and I heard a report on BBC Radio about a government study where they indicated that as a result of TV and technology and the like, families rarely spend time together anymore. The study observed that conversation between family members, and so it doesn't mean that they're not under the same roof, it just means that when they're under the same roof, they don't do a lot of talking like they used to. They don't do a lot of interacting like they used to. And the, the article said that, that conversation has degenerated into an indistinguishable series of monosyllabic grunts. That's the, the English version of what family life is like in, in the West today, is just sitting around with your screens in front of the TV. Mm. 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 And what was the recommended solution to this dilemma? Well, the article went on to say that the government will teach a series of classes instructing families on how to talk and play together. And Whitney had two responses. First, things must be really bad when the government believes that the family is in trouble. And, and secondly, it was his conviction that God had wiser plans than man could come up with if we would simply listen to him. And he goes on, I had gone to England to speak at a conference, and around the table there one evening, I heard the story of a minister's family who had not acted as though God has a better plan until it was too late. 
The minister's widow told me that the greatest regret of her life was that her late husband had not begun leading their family in daily worship of God together until after he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Boom. Then he said uh, he heard of another story sent to him by a friend describing what he and his four siblings said at their parents' 50th wedding anniversary. And here's what his friend wrote. All five of his children decided to express thanks to her father and mother for one thing without consulting each other. Remarkably, without talking to each other beforehand, all five of us thanked our mother for her prayers and all five of us thanked our father for his leadership of family worship. Family worship. My brother said, Dad, the oldest memory I have is of tears streaming over your face as you taught us from Pilgrim's Progress on Sunday evenings about how the Holy Spirit leads believers. When I was only three, God used you in a family worship to convict me that Christianity was real. No matter how far I went astray in later years, I could never seriously question the reality of Christianity. And I want to thank you for that. Whitney goes on to show that studies proclaim that a high percentage of church-going teens leave the church once they finish high school. Many of us have experienced that firsthand, the pain of that. So his conviction is that one of the crucial factors that parents might be missing is that they're depriving their children of critical means of grace that God wants to use in their children's lives. Family worship. And this isn't the case. This is, most of the things I'll say anecdotally about parents and children, it doesn't apply in every case. So please, that's a big bridge I need to build right away. But he contends that family worship is a crucial piece that's missing in too many Christian families today. The gathering together as a family at home to pray together, read the word together, and even sing together regularly is too often missing that most young people who leave faith behind when they leave the home have no early sweet memories of family worship. Such recollections, if they had them, might help prevent their departure from the faith in the first place. Or if they do walk away, which many of them will anyway, no matter how many devotions you might have, the memories might be the means that God uses to turn their hearts to seek him again later. And then he ends the intro with this jarring survey. According to Barna, 85% of parents with children under the age of 13, 85% of children in America under the age of 13 believe that they have the primary responsibility for teaching their children about religious beliefs and spiritual matters. But the survey also reveals that a majority of those parents don't spend any time during a typical week. The majority of the parents don't spend any time during a typical week discussing religious matters or studying religious materials with their children. We might think that it's the job of a youth pastor or if we're homeschooling in a co-op, the co-op context, or if our kids are in a private Christian school, that that that, that culture and that context should bear the weight of spiritual upbringing for our kids. But if we look to the word of God, if we just take what we see clearly and explicitly in the word of God, we see something really different and really clear. We see that the spiritual nurturing of children 
according to all that we can see in God's word, is primarily the responsibility of parents. We see this explicit and early in the Bible. Of course, it comes implicitly as you watch Abraham talk to Isaac and you hear their conversations. It's clear that Isaac, even as a boy, understands something of the worship of God. He's able to ask his father, where is the sacrifice for the Lord? Father, as they go up the hill where Abraham is tested, so you see these, these pictures here and there that these children know something of the Lord. And of course, in those days, there was no institutional churches or youth groups. But when we come to Moses, what's implicit becomes really clear. As Moses commands Israel in Deuteronomy, I've got that here. Can we go to the next slide? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And we, we've heard, many of us have heard that passage before from Jesus' own lips or it's just a famous passage, isn't it? But here's the very next thing God says after that. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And what does he mean? Well, he unpacks it. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. What's Moses describing through the Lord's command? He's describing a home where the Lord is on the lips of the parents all the time with their kids, where it's, just no, it's the normal air that is breathed in a home is the truth about the Lord, the commands of Yahweh, the glory of God. When you sit in your house, whoever sits in their house, <laughs> when you walk, who, who, does anybody in here walk? When you lie down, anybody go to bed? When you rise up, anybody go downstairs in the morning? He's saying, let me be on your lips towards your children. In Joshua 24, 15, Joshua is calling Israel to make a choice of devotion. There are two options, he says. There is either devotion to God or devotion to idols. There are still only two options, right? There's no neutral third choice for Joshua. There's no neutral third choice for us. And he makes this challenge. It's either God or the world. And he says, if it's evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, then choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. In other words, either the world and what it has to offer. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Notice what Joshua said here. We're all familiar with that verse, right? We see that in a lot of houses. But it's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He doesn't just say for me. Joshua claimed a vision not only for himself, but for his whole house. He means his kids. As for me, as a father, he's saying, my whole family is gonna serve the Lord and I'm standing here this day to proclaim it. But he'd have to walk that out somehow, right? It's one thing to claim it. It's one thing to live it out. In Psalm 78, we read of God's glory and the great deeds of the Lord. And the psalmist, talking of the great deeds of the Lord, of his salvation and his power and his might, and all these things that point to his character, he says this, which we have heard and known, the Lord, his great deeds, who he is. And our fathers have told us. We heard it from our parents. They heard it from their parents. And their parents actually saw it live in person. And then he says, we will not hide them from their children. 
Meaning the things our fathers told us will not hide them from our father's children, our brothers and sisters, our grandchildren, but will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of the Lord, but keep his commandments. They should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. In this context, what is gonna keep the future generations from becoming a stubborn and rebellious generation whose heart is not steadfast and whose spirit is not faithful to God? Well, surely it can only come from the power of the Holy Spirit who alone can transform our hearts. The Lord uses means. He always, almost always, uses means. Right? When Paul talked about the gospel and the power of the message of Christ to save, he noted that it was the power of Christ. I mean, if you read Paul's writings, it's always the Lord who saves. But what has Paul said? It comes through faith. But how? Will that faith come unless someone, he says in Romans 10, goes and preaches and they hear and they believe? Because even though it's always the Lord who does the saving and the changing and the transforming, he uses his word. He uses his truth. And for that, he uses you and me. Solomon saw the same thing he pleaded with his son, hear my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. It's parents' responsibility. That's what we're seeing in all these verses. Is it's, it's this weight on moms and dads, primarily above anybody else and any other institution that God has given to bring their children the knowledge of the Lord and the truths about the Lord. Can't change their hearts. But bring your kids the means that God might use to change their hearts. Ephesians 6.4, Paul continues this picture. We're now in the New Testament. We're now in the inauguration of the new covenant. It's a new age. And yet Paul says the same thing. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what we see in all these passages is that God places the responsibility in parents to lead their children and the knowledge of God and especially we see in this passage there's, an, there's a particular emphasis on, on dads. That word fathers is fathers. Paul could have used the word parents but he didn't. He chose fathers. A, a moment later he says children obey your parents and then he says and, and specifically he says to fathers don't provoke your children to anger because the primary authority in the home lies in the father and, and his hand can be heavy. In the Roman world, there was a gross misuse of authority and an abuse of power that was institutionalized in the conventions of the Roman people. A father had the right in his home in Rome to kill his kids. A Roman citizen and father could decide that his kids were so out of whack that he could literally kill them. 
Fathers were abusive and angry. So Paul, the first thing he says about anything else to fathers is don't provoke your children to anger. Don't embitter them against you. Well, how's a father gonna do that? By being full of harshness and anger and demand and, and cruelty and cynicism and sarcasm and mocking. And their children learn that from their parents. Oh, this... There's a lot to, to regret when you hear something like that, if you're me. Um, but he says, bring them up instead of angering them, discouraging them needlessly. Now, sometimes our kids get discouraged, and it's not our fault. They're st- we're still called to bring authority into their lives. They're still called to obey. But his appeal is to not let it be discouragement born of your cruelty and insolence. And of course, again, I want to make the point that, that Jesse and Mark and Luke and Isaac and Caleb, they bear a special, I don't want to say special, unique. There's an emphasis on their responsibility here. That word fathers is fathers and not parents. Now, in the convention of the languages, Michael was saying about brothers, brothers often meant brothers and sisters, like mankind. Um, means men and women. And that can happen with the word father here. But the fact that Paul just said, obey your parents, but changes to fathers, tells us that, of, of course, children are under their mother's authority too. And of course, a mother's godly teaching is absolutely indispensable and deeply shaping, for better or for worse. But what we see from God's word here is that it is not to be left to mothers to bear this primary responsibility alone. Often in the case, still in the West, fathers are working more outside the home and often come home tired. And so it can be hard, right? We under, I understand that as dads, but, but Paul is calling the dads here, don't give in to letting the wife bear this responsibility on her own. You're gonna come home tired and passive and you're gonna wanna veg out on your phone and your TV, and he's saying it is not right to lay that on your wife. No, the Lord holds both parents, but dad's especially responsible for the spiritual nourishment of our children. And this doesn't mean that dads have to do everything. I think it means that dads need to see that everything is done, but not simply by leaving it to the mom, because... That's another way we can exploit our leadership and authority in the home, which blasphemes God and makes it ugly and oppressive, which delegitimizes our authority altogether as husbands who are supposed to be the heads of the home. God doesn't underwrite checks for the father and the husband to abuse and exploit the authority he's given them in the home. That authority has one purpose, and it's to serve. It's to lay down your life for your wife, and to care for your children. And when we twist it and we use it to exploit, we tempt the Lord, we blaspheme his image. So we want to see that mothers are not left with the relational and spiritual burden of child rearing on their own. But here's also good news for you mothers, all of you, 
when you are left alone through the neglect of your husbands or ex-husbands or men who were never willing to be your husband, when you are left alone by desertion, abandonment, adultery, you can trust your husband, Redeemer, and your father, God, whose heart beats with zeal and compassion for the orphan and the widow. And you may have been left functionally a widow because functionally your husband is dead to the Lord. But he will certainly be with you, the Lord, as a single mother who's left alone to carry a burden that was not intended for you to carry alone. So in the reality of all that ugliness, Whitney makes this special plea to fathers, which I think is poignant. He says, you do not expect others to do this for you, do you, fathers? Of course not. It is a command given you as your direct responsibility. So I ask you, when will you do this? Bringing up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is not accomplished unintentionally or incidentally. And then he goes on to survey church history and consider saints long gone but known for their zeal. One man that I came upon in my reading was Samuel Davies, this long ago dead man. He's in, I think he was lived in the 1700s. And I could hear his heart ache as he said this to fathers. If you love your children, if you would bring down the blessing of heaven upon your families, if you would have your children make their houses the receptacles of religion, the containers of the Lord's truth. When you hear religion, think of the Lord's truth. If you would make your children's houses the receptacles of religion, when they set up in life for themselves, if you would have religion survive in this place, and I think by place he means this land, and be conveyed from age to age, if you would deliver your own souls, I beseech, I entreat, I charge you to begin and continue the worship of God in your families from this day to the close of your lives. Consider family religion, not merely a duty imposed by authority. Listen to this. Consider family religion. He means the worship of God in your homes. Not only a duty imposed by authority, but as your greatest privilege granted by divine grace. But here's another reason why I loved what I read in this book. Because what what Whitney does is after piling on the responsibility and the urgency and the, the loss and the potential, and you just feel like, oh, do I ever, it's too much. Uh, he, he does a really good job of making sure you understand that this does not have to be complicated or tedious. Not that parenting, broadly speaking, isn't very wearying. But the issue of trying to bring your family together around the word and God and in prayer, he boils down to three time-tested and reliable components. Read, pray, and sing. Read, pray, and sing. Read, pray, and sing. Every day, or most days, read, pray, and sing. Read a portion of the Bible or a portion of a book they can understand that honors God's word. 
because they're often not going to understand the Bible for a while. But read a portion and, and take some time to try to explain it as best you can to them. And pray. At least you, as a parent, pray. And I love this. Pray who you are before the Lord. Be honest. Be dependent. Be discouraged. Be needy. Be real. Show your kids through your prayer, in your neediness, in your discouragement even, that God is an encourager, that God is the place to go when, you're, when your head is down and your soul is downcast. You don't have to hide in front of your kids and pretend to be somebody you're not. It will be better for you if you're really trying to follow the Lord that even in hard places they see that you're still trying to follow the Lord even in hard places, because they're going to get that intuitively. Oh my gosh, even when I'm down or sad or feel weak or feel frightened or afraid or despairing and discouraged, I can still go to him. I can go to him with everything. So do that in front of your kids. Go to him with everything. Because moms and dads as well, right? And then invite them to pray. But don't force them to, right? We don't want to compel false worship in our kids by saying you have to say it this way and do it now a lot of times my kids just don't want to pray sometimes they do sometimes they don't but but you pray and you be real and then sing a song (laughs) sing a song that honors the lord because songs help us remember because it's fun to sing especially little kids love to sing and they put these truths to memory that makes it easier and more accessible. But also songs start to mess with our emotions, don't they? It's why God gave us music, to help speed up. So that the truth, we actually get to see it better through music because the beauty of the truth comes through those songs. Read, pray, and sing, read, pray, and sing. That's all he says. And he's careful to say, and my kids would say, amen, amen. Don't make it too long. <sighs> Don't make it a half hour. And my kids are like, Oh, dad missed that part. Teacher dad. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, in my experience, there, there's all kinds of mistakes that I've made and still make in this. And my kids are like, yeah, 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 it's so true. And, and um, I also find that family devotional time is a time where, where I get attacked. <clears throat> and I've heard this from other dads who try to do this, that there is a vulnerability to the fiery darts and where there's sin in your heart that's just gestating, anger, irritation, impatience. It just seems like these strategic moments where bringing the family together before God in prayer, it just sometimes you just feel like that, that first Peter picture of a prowling lion where Satan just waits and he charges. It's like he picks 10 minutes after dinner when you wanna have family devotion. And suddenly you just are the biggest jerk in the universe and you're like, 13 minutes ago, I was laughing and enjoying my kids. And now somebody needs to call Child Protective Services. Like, how did that happen? I, I joke. I don't mean that literally. Like, but I mean, but, but like, how did that happen? Just like that. Satan's prowling around. Anybody ever can relate to that? Anybody ever see that happen? That there's these strategic moments where he just pounces. So... Again, my kids want me to say, none of this should take too long because kids cannot handle long. It's not because we're trying to dumb it down for our culture. It it really is true that 200 years ago, they were saying, don't make it too long, (laughs) you know, before phones and games. 
And, and I want to also say, read, pray, and sing. This is one way of doing one part of leading your children in, in the Lord, right? It's one way of doing it. There, it's not the way. There are many different ways. Other practices families can do. Caring for the poor together. Praying for the persecuted church together. It may not even be good at different seasons to be together. I mean, some of you seasoned parents know there are multifaceted ways to do this. But as we said before, when we talk about discipling, our, our, discipling one another in the church or husbands pursuing your wives, it doesn't have to look like it looks for me. And we can't judge one another because it doesn't look like it looks like the way I do it, the way I think it should be done. It doesn't have to look like everybody else. But it needs to look like something. Right? But wouldn't it, wouldn't it be wonderful to create a culture? And is, wasn't it great to grow up in a culture for, for many of us? And, and for many of us who didn't, like me, aren't you sad that you didn't grow up in a culture? <laughs> but, but specifically for, for Luke and Jesse and Kale and Mark and Mare and Michelle and Emma and Maddie, wouldn't it be great to have your kids grow up in a home where they're not able to imagine a mom and a dad who did not pray with them. They're not able to imagine what it would be like to be a mother who doesn't speak honestly to God so often in front of them in their discouragement. They couldn't imagine having a mommy who, who didn't pour out their heart to the Lord and sometimes sang to him. Let them think that, that a parent sharing this kind of life with their kids is just normal family. Wouldn't it be great to have them grow up to think that that's just what family is supposed to be like? Because it should be. Wouldn't it be great to have your daughters, and we got three daughters that came up here today. We got four. And Zoe, girl. Wouldn't it be great to have her daughters understand whether he's there or not? That a parent cares about the spiritual life of their children. There's no other kind of parent. Wouldn't it be great for your boys to think that leading the family into praying together is simply a normal part of being a dad, that it is, a, it is being a dad, that that's one and the same thing. The great British pastor of the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, bemoaned to his 19th century audience Brethren, I wish it were more common. I wish it were universal with all Christians to have family prayer. We sometimes hear of children of Christian parents who do not grow up in the fear of God. And we are asked how it is that they turn out so badly in many, very many cases. Notice he didn't say all. He said in many, very many cases, I fear there is such a neglect of family worship that it is probable that the children are not at all impressed because there was no piety possessed by their parents. And so their parents' profession was superficial to them. And what they learned from their parents was that following the Lord was for Sunday morning, but the rest of the week was for TV and phones and soccer games and hanging out with the friends at the mall and eating burgers. You know, a, a lot of good stuff. 
But it wasn't about that. It wasn't about the Lord. He was over here in this little part of the week. I fear if Spurgeon said that in 1800s, what might he look at in the 21st century and see the imbalance of too much time that we, particularly as men, give to media. And he would grieve at what our wives and our children had lost in the special care that could have been theirs. So let, let's, let that not be true of us, Jesse and Luke and Kale and Mark, as you build these homes. And Michael, as you take in these children pretty soon, hopefully, Lord willing. Let, let's let it not be true of us. Did I miss someone? Isaac. Well, I just suppose it's not gonna be true of Isaac. I mean, he's just... I'm just teasing. Yes, let it not be true. God has given you parents an incredible honor in having a season to steward the life of these precious image bearers. So I want to exhort you, obey the Lord in this solemn and holy responsibility to care for the spiritual nourishment of your children. If God commands this of you, it is because it is important to him, which means it is vitally important to your children. So don't neglect them. Of course, there's no guarantee your children, there is no guarantee your children will be saved through your instruction in your home or in your lifetime. But if God commands you to do this, it means he means to use you. We don't know how, we don't know when, but if God commands you to obey him, it means that he means and intends to use you, and he will. And listen, God is good at the long game. He is really good at the long game. We're results now. People, God is awaiting God. The sinful resistance to God that exists in your children just as it existed in you is no match for his grace. Most of us know children who came to the Lord long after leaving home and long after leaving their childlike faith. But somewhere as adults, those words and prayers and songs told them long ago in the family room that that. that told them whether they imbibed and joined in or not, but those words and prayers and songs proclaimed to them that God was real and he was holy and he was loving and he was good and that there was eternal life at stake or eternal destruction at stake and that God was needed and that he was dependable. Those things all came back into their memory and they came to life again. And, and we know kids of whom when they became adults after straying from the Lord for many years, that reality of what they learned when they were young, it became part of the means that God used to draw them back to eternal life. So in whatever way you see best, see to the spiritual nourishment of your children. And in closing, I want to say to all of us, I want to say this. To all of us, just a reminder, bringing the word of God and prayer into your children's lives is important and crucial because the word of God and prayer 
is important and crucial, full stop. Let me say that again to everyone in this room. Bringing the word of God and prayer into your children's lives is important and crucial because the word of God and prayer to God is important and crucial, full stop. It's important for children because it's important for everyone. The word of God says this about the word of God. We must pay careful attention to what we hear so that we do not drift away. Brothers and sisters, the current of this world is not still. And unless we, by the Spirit's, are moving towards God by the Spirit, it is very likely that we are being moved away from God by the world. Don't we all know this who know the Lord? Unless by the Spirit we're moving towards God by His Spirit, it is likely that we are being moved away from God by the world. That's why Proverbs 13, 13 warns us and promises us, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. Consider the word little, unimportant, neglectable, optional, and you will bring destruction on yourself. Almost always it'll be very, very slow motion until it isn't. But he who reveres or she who reveres the commandment. The word of the Lord will be rewarded. There's no question. Even in our feebleness, even in our weakness, even as we say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, even as we beg him for strength to follow him today, and it's so hard, and we don't know how we're gonna make it, but we beg and pray, and we plead, and we use his promises, and he says, I'll give you enough. We're gonna make it. We're gonna make it. I have grace and mercy. That's enough for what you're facing. But we need to hear that again and again and again. So let's be those who revere God's word and don't neglect it. Our Lord told us his word is as important to our spiritual life as food is to our physical life. Did you hear that? His word is as important to our physical life as food is to to our spiritual life as food is to our physical life. So let's be those who who let the word of God dwell richly in us, the word of Jesus. And on prayer, I just want to say this. James tells us in the fourth chapter of his book that there may be things that God would want to give you and do in you for your good that he simply isn't giving you or doing in you because you are just neglecting him in prayer. You're just not talking to him. You're just not asking and he's like, I want to help you. But I've, I've set things up this way. You've got to be in relationship with me. And, and he's saying, I want to bless you. But you don't have because you're not asking. You're not coming to me. You're not talking to me. So let's not be those who neglect God with prayerlessness. But let's make it our habit to be pouring out our hearts to him as if it were almost like breathing. Let's cast our burdens on him 
Let's not let our burdens pile up in here so they can fuel more anxiety or despair or anger or escape into video games or 10 hours on the phone or you know, dot, whatever it is into hobbies that numb us. No, let's let our burdens become, just get dumped on him because he really does care for us. So let's bring our longings again and again and, and be encouraged about what Jesus says in Luke 18, 1, to always pray and never give up. Bang on his door, bang on his door, bang on his door. Read Luke 18, that's all it's about. Keep knocking, keep banging, keep pleading, keep knocking, keep pleading until you get what you need from God. Which may not always be what you think you need from God, but then he answers by telling you, well, actually you needed this, and you're like, oh yeah, I did, that's great. But keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay, 11, 11.48. Whew, we made it. You guys are all still here, most of you. We, we lost some of you, but maybe they'll go online. Okay, we have gifts out there. You, you parents, go out there and look at these books. Also, I just want to mention uh, the Wayward Child book just came in. Michael kind of like kind of jokingly talked about this, but it's a really, which was just, come on, Michael. It's a really good book. <laughs> I love you. It's a, it's a, this is a really good devotional. This is a real serious issue. And so if you're a parent who has a child who's not walking with the Lord and you don't know how to care for them, this is a 31-day devotional. What I love about these is it's just a couple of pages a day. It takes you a few minutes to read, but it sticks you on a theme for a whole month so that you really get equipped and encouraged substantially over time, but in bite-sized chewies that you can handle. I don't mean it to, to, to you get the point. There, there's, there's a concentrated amount of, of equipping and encouragement that happens in, in, a, in small enough bites that you can grab on it, but you get it for a month, so it really piles up in terms of equipment. And the other thing is that good parenting, if you're married, it's very much affected by your marriage. Everybody knows this. So this is another book called Marriage Conflict, Talking as Teammates. You may not be in conflict today, but you, you probably were yesterday, and you will be tomorrow. So I would just encourage everybody in this church to get this book if you're married on Talking as Teammates, and just Ask your spouse to go through it with you. And, and if you're not, if you feel like your marriage is, is, is pastoral and beautiful and a, a field of flowers, it won't always be. Some days those flowers will be all on fire. So, um, so get this book and prepare for that day, okay? Get, these are great, helpful things. They're out there. 